0: Hello and welcome to Office Hours with David Meltzer. Uh, I'm a co-host, Blaine Bartlett, and David is in the traveling uh, studio today. So he's going to be kind of weaving in and out as we do this. And uh, David, just real quick before I I introduce Brendan here, uh, where are you headed right now? I know where you're headed, but just let everybody know.
1: Yeah. So we're here at the Grounded Men Retreat, and we have a VIP dinner in honor of Unstoppable Foundation. Uh, We have Dr. Joe Dispenza, we have Chicharito, the world famous premier soccer player, Dr. Kian Vu, Dr. Pascal. uh, We have uh, myself and many other uh, people here to support the Unstoppable Foundation in Santa Barbara. uh, And we're gonna have uh, a very interesting mastermind dinner uh, with all of us answering questions and pouring into the community. In support of Unstoppable, which Blaine and I are on the board of, and Cynthia kersey is the founder, and she'll be here as well uh to help us uh, get and garner the support that we need. thanks Blaine for giving us an opportunity to promote the grounded men retreat and thank you, Brendan, for your patience for mobile Melzer here in the sprinter band studio live oh we're right by neverland uh ranchre we're, we're a ranch uh here so uh It's very beautiful, but I'm ready to get going with office hours. Thanks, Blaine.
0: There you go. Good. Brendan, welcome. Uh, Hey, folks, you you all have heard uh, without a doubt uh, about FUD factor, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And um, Brendan has got this fascinating book just coming out. Uh, First of all, he's a CEO and president of Merchants Fleet. And we're going to talk about that a little bit, too. But uh, the idea behind the book, his newest book, "The FUD Factor: Overcoming Fear, Uncertainty, and Doubt in Order to Achieve the Impossible." Now, that 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 last piece is the the piece that I think is uh, the real grab, because uh, yeah, and most people think of you know overcoming FUD just to kind of get by, <laughs> let me get over sure. the hump. So this is a you know, completely different uh, you know, aspirational focus here. So. Before we go into you know, what you've got going with Merchants Fleet, why don't we just talk a little bit about the book?
2: Yeah, Blaine, it's uh it, it's real interesting. You know, it's it's I don't think we realize how much fear, uncertainty, and doubt we uh we we have. So you know, if you think when when we're all born, we're we're truly born fearless, and and you know, as as kids, we just kind of go out and do stuff, and all of a sudden, it's it's parents, it's family, it's guardians, it's loved ones, it's society that says hey, hey, put that seatbelt on. Hey, you're going skateboarding, put a helmet on. But, you know, when you, when, you, when you tell like a little kid, hey, put a helmet on so you don't fall, in the kid's mind, they, they didn't even know that, that, that falling was an option. They had no fear. They, they, it was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be on skateboard. What do you mean fall? Um, so it's, it's, you know, we, we, we unintentionally I- imprint ourselves with fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Hey, you know, I want to go to, I'm going to go to prom. I want to ask this girl out. Uh, what if she says no? And we start to get this uncertainty. Um, you know, we're, we're thinking in, in, in high school, trying out for a team or a soccer team or an elite travel team. And someone goes, hey, you know, they only select a few people. You may not make it. But the, the kid who was trying out was like, what do you mean? I'm going to make it. So, you know, like we get this. And then it, that just builds up over time. And what it winds up happening is it stops us from trying to achieve oftentimes great things because when we say, hey, we want to do something great. We want to travel in a sprinter uh, across Santa Barbara and go do something great and, have, and be a VIP at a dinner. And someone goes, oh, but I'm not a VIP. Yeah. Well, like, why? Why do you say that? Because over time, you started to believe these little seeds of uncertainty and doubt or fear. And then once, you, once it's like a snowball, once you start to have that, it grows. It grows within you. And here's the thing. Oftentimes, it grows unconsciously. People don't even realize that they're holding themselves back.
0: Yeah. uh, Go ahead, Dave.
1: Yeah. Sorry, Brendan. You know, I have a saying, we'll never overachieve our own self-image and incorporated in that self-image is our relationship, not only with fear, but the emotional address that we give that fear. And when you talked about all those scenarios, you know, but what if, uh, they all are indicative of the emotional address of fear placed on an outcome of success or failure instead of on experience and journey. And so uh, within the perspective, how do we get people to enjoy the journey and not necessarily worry about the outcome?
2: Yeah. So it's, it's interesting you, you, when you say enjoy the journey, you know, I've been I'm in, at, at this particular company now coming on six years and I end every email, every, uh, every virtual hangout, um, every town hall with enjoy the journey. And, that, and, and, and I think when you enjoy the journey, as you just said, and, and you're part of the journey and you're conscious in your own journey, you actually get to see all the little things that are possible. And, you know, little things every day, 1% habits, good habits really turn into something that's extraordinary. And, you know, no one has ever said, hey, I'm going to go achieve something extraordinary without 100 little steps getting them there. You know whether that's an athlete making it to a uh, college level or pro level or celebrity or a business person getting to be a become a director because that's what they really wanted to achieve or someone being the first to finish college in their family well it's not just hey, I just finished college it's I did well in high school i I, I found a school i i won't I, I applied for financial aid i I took the uh, the SAT and I did one step in front of the other and And too many times, like, we see the big picture, but we don't enjoy the journey along the way. But what I will say to to you and your audience is, I think some of the most fascinating, most enjoyable parts of the journey are the struggles, are the struggles. That's where we grow as people.
0: You know, that's an interesting comment, I think, Brendan, because most people don't understand the purpose of a goal. Most people think that a goal is to achieve something. And yeah, that does happen. But if you're setting the right kind of goals, the purpose of a, of a goal is actually to grow. And you're not going to grow by remaining comfortable. You're not going to grow by doing what you know how to do. You got to step out on that edge and you got to step out there and you got to do some things that are very, very, yeah, at the at the time, risky. Um, yeah, you have done some you know actually truly amazing things uh, in, in, in your career here. I mean, right now you're the CEO of... Uh, you know the fastest growing fleet technology company in in, in north america but you've also been uh, named the world's most innovative ceo by ce world awards uh you've done you know fast company 10 most innovative companies i mean you've got a lot of things that you know from a cred perspective it's kind of like whoa yeah yeah so so you know what's real interesting is
2: it's like when I think of innovativeness and I think of some of the things, the company I'm at, it's, we're, we're a 60-year-old company, and, you know, and I used to be the company's biggest client back in 2009. That's how I knew them, and, and then I joined the board. And then uh, here, here's the lesson. If you speak up at a board meeting enough with good ideas, eventually they say, you think you're so smart? Why don't you run the place? Yep. So you know, I joined a little over five years ago. We were about $500 million. You know, Last year, we hit the $2.5 mark. So you know, we, we right. really had rapid growth. We wound up selling to Bain Capital and everyone said, oh, what an innovative company. And we were. But if I walked you through all the innovations, you'd say, is that really wildly innovative or were you just willing to do things that I'll use your word, Blaine, that were uncomfortable and, and that made you a great company? So commercial fleet, not the uh, sexiest business, but here's what I'll tell you. So right now, David, you're driving down the road. One out of five vehicles on the road at, when you're going is a fleet vehicle. You think of Amazon, UPS, FedEx, Postal Service. Those are the obvious ones. But, you know, Joe's HVAC and Sally's Painting, those are also fleet vehicles, you know, and and that's what that's what we do. But I took a company that was okay, growing two to three percent a year, staying in their lane, if you will, not not trying anything unique and different. And said, let's go try to be innovative. Let's go try to be different. Let's go try some things. And on my first day, I met with uh, the whole leadership team, three people that really ran the p and the business, and said, I want you each in the next six months to start two businesses. And it's OK that one fails. And I expect one to fail. And, and you think that's an easy concept? Now, after three months, none of them had started a business. They were all so focused on, it has to be right. It has to make money from day one. I remember telling them, I never said, you needed to make money in the first six months. What I said is start a business. And uh, so it, it's just, it's, um, you know, it's been, it's been a, a great journey, but the, the things we've done, as innovative as they appear to be, they're really not. We're just willing to fail. We're willing to try new things. And if I lined up all the new things, you would literally say, that's not rocket science. That's not amazing. It's pretty simple stuff.
1: Brendan, one of the the things that's so interesting and working for bigger companies like you have um, is the cover your ass uh, culture. And it's very rare, even though you know know and I know that it's an evolutionary process of someone who's willing to fail and fail fast and learn from it, uh, and now they call you a genius and an innovator, uh, the real challenge was to uh, believe in what you believe in, not was missing, not was, you know, wasn't there, not what they thought. Uh, because I see the biggest limitation in bigger companies, especially, is the fear of losing their job or fear of, you know, being exposed uh, for taking a chance. And I found that most boards and most leadership of big companies, they want risk takers like you. And how do we get that communication to the directors and managers, uh, Hey, don't cover your ass, but be able to defend your choices by what you've learned. And I just yeah. am so puzzled that many leaders can't do that.
2: Well, see, well, first of all, what, what I'll say in my career is I look at the things that have failed, the, the attempts we've made. I've learned way more in the failures when you kind of dissect them. Why did this fail? Why didn't it work? Than some of the successes, um, you know, what the, a couple of the things we did is, is or that I that I really push people to do is, you know, do training company wide. And because first thing, when you try to be innovative, a lot of people say I'm not creative. And I'm like, we we didn't say be creative, I said be innovative, yeah. you know, be innovative, could be. Hey, we, we have a form that everyone has to fill out. And five of these fields don't make any sense. And it takes a half hour to fill out. Why don't we just simplify it? That's not being creative. That's just being productive. So so do some training that really unleashes everyone to be a part of it. Um, But the biggest thing that I can say that has made it cultural in companies is we celebrate our failures and we talk about them. Mm -hmm. So I remember we we, we said, we're going to go into the you know, there's all these franchises. So if you think of franchises, and they, have, they have cargo vans running all over the place doing different things. We said, we're going to enter that business. And, and we do larger fleets. We enter the business. We hire people. And after a year, we say, this is a real kick in the ass. This is hard. Because we're doing, instead of doing like a big 2,000 unit fleet, we're doing all these small fleets of two. And we weren't set up to service like that. So we shut it down. But like we, we, in our monthly huddles on virtual hangouts with the company, we talked about it we said here's why we went into it here's here's why it's not working it's putting too much stress on our operations and we're shutting it down and we're taking care of um, you know the clients we're making sure that we're not like you know just pushing them off and, and we kind of had a toast and we talked about it and, I, and, I, and and we have a little chat room during these the chat room just lit up with you know great comments but also surprising comments of why are we celebrating a failure and what I loved is employees were answering that employees were saying, you know, Hey, cause we try. And I think that's the lesson in it is if you don't try, you're not going to do anything great.
0: Yeah.
2: You're just not going to do anything great. You, you're going to do something good. You're going to, you're going to be average or above average, but you're never going to be great if you're not trying to be great.
0: You know, Akio, uh, not, not Akio Morita, uh, <laughs> Honda. I, I just, I just spent a week in Japan, uh, doing some trainings, uh, leadership development work. And one of the programs I was working on is a new one that we're bringing online here. Uh, the secrets of sustainable success and that notion of just kind of how do you keep yourself moving? Um, but so Richard Honda was asked one time, what's the secret to your su- success? And he said, I made as many mistakes as I could as fast as I could. <laughs> and, and, and yeah. he celebrated that in, in, in the Honda you know, company in the, in that whole ecosystem, that was something that they absolutely celebrated. Um. The, the, the question of moving into that unknown territory, Brendan, that's um, incremental steps. And you were, you know, I, I was really struck by you know, six months. They had not started any new businesses. They were still at the starting line. Let me just check this out. And this is a question just based on your experience. Um, I've got an observation around this, but I'd like to kind of vet it. Yeah. What hangs them up, what hangs people up is they get fixated on how do I do this? how do I do this? And the ones that I've looked at, the companies that I've looked at and the leaders that I've actually been around in the last 40 years, they aren't too concerned with how I do it. They're more concerned with looking for who can help me do this. And that focus on the who rather than the how is the transformative nexus. Is is that
2: your experience? It it, it is because if you focus on on the how, like you don't know how. You're going to try something you haven't done. Right. And, like in, in, you know, you, you can't grab a playbook off the shelf that says, oh, here's how I do something I've never done that 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 doesn't exist. And interesting, you, you used the term they're fixated, I think, or, or fixed. We have a term in the company we use and we a consultant had used it in a meeting and it stuck with us fixedness. You know, we have fixedness as as people. And, oh, this is how you do it. Why? This is how I've always done it. You know, and, and, and by the way, some fixedness is really good. If we didn't have some fixedness, we wouldn't know how to tie our shoe in the morning, right? Because that's just, you know, learning. So some fixedness, but when you have fixedness around solving clients problems, when you have fixedness about how to grow a company, it actually works against you. And, and, you know, you talked about the who it's, you know, get, get the right people and, and, and let them go, you know, one, one, one little anecdote that I, uh, we we said, we're going to start a truck rental business. And, and the, team was coming up with, how many do we order? Where do we order them? How do we do this? Who do we pursue? And after six months, they came in and they said, we're really thinking of, um, we're thinking of ordering 50 trucks and starting this business. I said, well, hey, good news. I ordered 500 yesterday. They're here in 90 days and you've got 90 days to get them on lease. And that was the catalyst that got yep. them to go. But left to left to their own, they were they were probably going to Keep studying it because they didn't want to fail. So all of a sudden, now it was like, hey, well, the boss says 500. We, we just got to go get these deployed. We did. Yeah. We did. But it was, and they just, it, and sometimes people just need a little push.
0: Just a little yep. push. So, and, and speaking of push, we're going to push you off the stage right now. I've got somebody else that we're going to bring in. But we want to connect with you again. I would love to have you on my show. I know David. Uh, Has got a couple of shows, you know, that we both have that uh, we'd love to have you uh, featured on as well, folks. You can find out more about what uh, uh, he's up to by going to let me see here Brendan P. Keegan with two two E's, BrendanP.Keegan.com. And I'm assuming you can get a copy of the book and everything else. uh, Absolutely. All right, well, Blaine, thank you. It's nice spending time
2: with you, David. Drive safe. Thanks so much for what you guys do. (laughs) Thank you. Important stuff. All right, thank you. Yeah, take care.
1: Great visionary. Uh, who's up next, Blaine?
0: Well, we have, we're, we're, we're moving the, the uh, roster around a little bit here, but uh, Wakas Al-Siddiq. Wakas Hi, guys. Al-Siddiq. Hey, hey, how, hey, how you
3: are doing? you doing? Not too bad. How are you guys doing?
0: We are doing amazingly well. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, Office Hours Thursday. It's the Soul of Business Office Hours version, and we cannot wait to find out what you're up to here at BioCity.
3: Yeah, so you uh, know, at sure. City, yeah, we are one of the largest uh, cardiac networks in the country. So we focus on high-risk patients and basically monitoring them actively uh, and delivering those results in real time to physicians and cardiologists so that they can deal with you know, real-time diagnostics, as opposed to giving patient a device and kind of sending them home and then waiting two, three weeks before you get the results back because it's got to be downloaded, analyzed, and then returned. So in our world, everything is instantaneous. We use smart analytics. So three o'clock in the morning, if we detect something, we can actually alert the physician and actually take action.
0: Yeah, Is there implantation involved with this? I mean, how, how does that sensor structure work with you?
3: You know, great question. So our whole focus is non-invasive monitoring, right? So we felt that. I love, the that. Future right there, was, I love exactly. that right there. <laughs> exactly. We, we felt the future was non-invasive monitoring, people kind of collecting data because most of healthcare happens when you're on the go. And so the idea was let's build a technology and let's build a platform that can collect metrics non-invasively. You're going about your life, you know, that whole wearable concept, but not for lifestyle, but for clinical uh, reasons. And so, it's external devices given to a patient. They get to wear it. They wear it twenty four seven, and then they bring it back to the to the doctor's office. And in between that time frame, if anything is detected, we alert uh, the the physician so that we can take action.
1: That's and great. the da- the data side is going to be more and more important as we go, and especially when we're talking about the heart. Um, and there's many lobbyists today that are facilitating the ownership of our own data. Because of the wearables and the mass distribution of information, um, are you guys on your roadmap or pipeline looking at the data play behind uh, the, you know, the actual uh, medical care that's given in supervision? Is there a data play in the business as well?
3: Yeah, absolutely. There's a huge data play. So we've got about 300 billion heartbeats tracked. Um, so a massive, <laughs> massive amount of uh, information. Now we utilize that primarily to help improve algorithms, but really what we see that the number one killer in the world, and this is like every country in the world, is heart issues. And we sort of don't focus on it simply because heart issues are intermittent. They're very complicated to predict. They're very complicated to detect. And because most of the long-term monitors, they're only really available in the clinical setting. And so from our perspective, the data play for us is, how can we understand and use this information that we're collecting clinically to give us kind of indicators on determining which patients could be at risk and how do we get them in earlier? and how do we how do we get them much earlier before they even get diagnosed?
0: with with that amount of data being collected, I mean that's an, that's a staggering number of heartbeats uh, yeah. <laughs> that you're referencing here. But yeah from an algorithmic perspective, are you able to actually trans yeah, you know, Take that data and enable a a predictive diagnostic uh, play with you know with the docs that are actually uh, facilitating the uh, the patient's care. It's kind of like yeah, we've got this. We've got these indices. Look out for this.
3: Yeah. So we do a few different things, right? So you know, one, we're working with the NIH right now to look at predictive monitoring in in uh, kidney patients. So that's specifically looking at how uh, we can look at heart issues within kidney patients, because that's the number one killer in, in kidney patients. But to your point, what we do is we have these thresholds. Essentially, most patients don't have a sudden condition. It deteriorates over time. Mm-hmm. We let the phys- physician know very early on saying, hey, you need to start paying attention because this patient has something. Now, that will move into the world of prediction, but of course, you know we're a clinical device, so FDA has very strict requirements on what we can say. But what we certainly do is, as we see this pathway deteriorating, we notify the physicians. And you know, to give you an idea of how complex cardiac issues are, I mean, you saw what happened with DeMar Hamlin, you saw what happened with Bronny James. I mean, these guys are athletes. They are screened all the time by GP. They, they collect their heart data all of the time. So how was it missed? And it's because it's intermittent. And the number one killer in you know, athletes is actually heart issues. And so that's where we've looked at, okay, how do we take all of this information that we've collected, identify a risk profile, notify the physician early, and then they can actually move into that, uh, in, uh, you know, capture those issues earlier. So we're essentially moving towards prediction and we can do it technically speaking from a data perspective and a data modeling perspective, but FDA has their guidelines. And I think in the next three to five years, they're gonna allow people to say more and do more. And until then our approach is, hey doc pay attention
0: that's great david you got a question there
1: yeah i do so you know obviously the heart uh, is the indicator whether we're alive or not your brain can stop your ears can stop your legs can fall off um and relative to that data into the analysis and tracking of the heart have you been able already to find uh different variables Uh, that may have not been known before of what causes uh, a heart attack or what causes heart disease.
3: Yeah, so we've been able to look at a lot of precursor information. So we're looking and seeing how things are deteriorating over time. So we've been able to look at things like, you know, when you talk about uh, certain changes in how your heartbeat is is, uh, operating, right? So everybody has these, random blips that occur and it's just normal in your ecg but then once you start having more and more of those occurrences and once they stack together then you're really going into a heart attack or heart block or something very uh you know very uh catastrophic but the precursor of that is seeing one or two of these beats show up you know and then you see them getting closer and closer together and then when you see three or four in a row now that's when you're in trouble and so that's what we've been able to see is that there's these these changes now what we have not seen is that monitoring today day is typically done maximum 30 days sure. so we uh, actually introduced a new product and won time magazines award last year for the best invention in the world um it is the first continuous heart monitor that exists and and that device as we roll that out and as more people use it it's going to give that the answer to that question that you just had right what is actually causing you know and i can give you a personal story I'm a big coffee drinker. I'm a coffee aficionado. And everybody tells me, don't drink coffee before going to bed. But it doesn't affect me. I can go to sleep. But I started wearing this continuous heart monitor, and I realized my heartbeat was, you know, five to seven beats higher while sleeping. So I was actually not getting as good of a rest because I was drinking coffee. But it wasn't affecting my ability to go to sleep. It was affecting the quality of my sleep. And I wouldn't have known that if I didn't have a continuous heart monitor. And I think this is exactly where, you know, to your question, how in these athletes and these people who are looking pretty healthy, how can we predict it? And and really what we need is a long-term monitor that's not limited to 30 days, but you can wear for months and years.
0: You know, that, that's interesting. So just a form factor on this, because uh, I have, you know, as part of an annual physical and all that kind of stuff, yeah. I would wear a monitor and, and you, know, it would, you know, not 30 days, but it'd be two weeks. And it's bulky. It's just, yep. it's an aggravation. If you're wearing this thing for as long as you said that you were wearing it, yeah, you know, what, what have you, how have you designed it from a form factor perspective so that you not only can, can contain the electronics and, and the, uh, the computer uh, software, you know, uh, hardware necessary to make this happen, but also to make it comfortable enough that people will want to wear it. Yeah, so on
3: the on the lifestyle product that we built, so we have the, the medical device, which is what a cardiologist will use, right. and they're going to de- determine your surgery. So in that case, we've made it incredibly small. It's, you know, probably this, about an inch and a half wide, and it's got three contact points that you have to, have to you know, stick to your skin. But of course, that's clinical setting, and, you know, you don't want to wear that on a long-term basis. But to your point, long-term, that's exactly the problem. How do you get it comfortable? And so what we built was uh, this product called BioHeart. And what it is is it's still a one and a half inch form factor, very thin, but it's a strap that you can wear, kind of like a like a belt or a heart rate strap. But instead of collecting heart rate, it's actually collecting, you know, clinical quality heart rhythm data. And you can sleep with that, wear, uh, exercise with that, live your life with that. I'm wearing one now, uh, and I wear it all the time. And and that one you can wear for months because there's no sticky to it. It's it's dry. It's just like a band and you forget about it.
0: That is brilliant. That is, I, I love where technology takes us. This is outstanding. Biotricity.com is the website folks. Uh, yeah, give yourself a gift and go check it out. Cause I mean, this is fascinating technology. It, it truly is. Um, and what I, you know, one of the things I like about this is, yeah, uh, just in the, in, in the conversation here, uh, uh, well, gosh, uh, what I'm hearing is that you're not so much interested in uh, market share as well as much as you are with market care, and you know that 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 move to market care, you know, really, yeah, taking care of people from a form factor all the way through the outcome that is getting uh, generated. Um, that's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. No, that's exactly right, and and we founded
3: the company because we we saw that. You know, technology was just not democratizing cardiac care. Yeah, yeah. So that, that how do we democratize cardiac access? And like you said, you get that annual physical every two weeks, but why is that technology not available to everybody? And so we, we solved it for the cardiologist and made it you know, improve the care uh, and, and the quality for the, for the individuals uh, while they're getting the annual physical. But then we also made it accessible for personal use. And
0: that's exactly right. That's beautiful. Again, you can find out more at uh, biotricity.com. Waqis Al Sadiq, he's the uh, founder, chairman, and CEO. And I love what you're up to. David, any final words to. uh...
1: No, I'm just blown away. Uh, Some of the things that we dreamed about, Blaine, when we were younger. Yeah. uh, uh, You know, literally ubiquitous health system uh, that is now shared, not only for the care, uh, but also for the uh, acceleration of uh the care and uh, what we can gather today is worth as much as the lives that we're saving so uh thanks so much i will make sure that we follow up uh even with more connectivity uh, as technology is keeping us at 65 miles an hour together today so thank you
0: <laughs> thank you because thank you very much for being a guest We'll talk to you later thank you for having me you bet and, and David, we got a little bit of time here. Adam, uh, our next guest has not uh, gotten into the studio yet, but uh, we'll just keep uh, the, the line open here and Reluca will let me know when, uh, when we're you know, good to go. And David, you appear to be frozen. So maybe I should just do a little monologue. I'm not sure, oh, there he is. Okay, <laughs> okay. Uh, we're gonna bring Adam in now. Okay, perfect. Great, and David's back with us too. So, Adam, welcome, CEO of Almanac. Great. io. Thanks Good for having you. me. David's on the road right now, so I'm kind of shepherding the show a little bit today. And yeah, you know, yeah, he's in a spot right now where connectivity is a little bit of a challenge. Like so, <laughs> yeah. Talk to us real quick here. The yeah, the modern work method um, derived from over five thousand interviews with top business professionals. What are you thinking about here? What what is this modern work method that uh, uh, Almanac.io is actually promulgating here? That you're that you're really championing?
4: Sure. I mean, I think what we're trying to do with the modern work method is answer a question about how we shall be working in uh, the new normal. Uh, in which we all now live, uh, you know, I, I just saw data today on return to office stats. And, you know, even though you hear a lot of news about bank CEOs and Elon Musk saying, hey, it's time to return to the office, just using cell phone data, you know, San Francisco's downtown is still below 40%. Even New York is uh, below 65%. Yep. Uh, you know, major downtowns from Miami to Chicago haven't recovered. And, and you know, now more than a year and a half after Um, the COVID restrictions ended, people are still working in a fully remote or in a hybrid fashion. They're certainly not going back to the office. And, you know, even before COVID, it wasn't as if we were working super well (laughs) together in an office. But now that teams are spread across time zones and even continents, um, there's a lot of pain that people are feeling around uh, how to just get stuff done quickly uh, on the Mm -hmm. internet. And some teams were working this way even before COVID, uh, and, you know, there's a, a strong correlation between the highest performing companies like Stripe or Amazon or Apple or Netflix and, and teams that have thought really intentionally about how they work. And so what we tried to do with the modern work method was talk to those teams. And, and as you mentioned, we have talked to over 5000 professionals at this point across four years, um, you know, thousands of companies that we've surveyed uh, and, and done first person interviews with to, to try and understand what is it about how you're working that's working so well? How did you figure it out? Um, How do you teach it to others? And we've um, uh, aggregated all those insights and synthesized them into a couple of key principles along with um, hundreds of templates that are free that teams can use to try and take some of those ideas from high-performing companies into their own working environments.
0: You know, I'm I'm fascinated by this because I mean, I've been in business for 40 plus years and I've worked with some of the largest companies as well as uh, startups. Uh, And the work process piece uh is an interesting conundrum i guess i would call it um because people get attached to certain ways of doing things that are not necessarily beneficial to what it is that we'd like to have as an outcome on the backside and one of the goals of almanac is to reduce uh you know a lot of that stuff by about 80 percent, as i understand it what are you running into in terms of um uh, people's resistance and or reluctance to let go of what was as they uh, <laughs> kind of come into focus or what bring into focus, what could be?
4: It's a great question. I think the transition we're in right now, will take uh, multiple decades <laughs> because I think there's a whole generation of managers um, that <clears throat> learn that success um, meant uh, that they had a team that had their butts in seats from nine to five and uh, and that the way they were supposed to manage is by making sure that people were in the office and attending meetings and responding to messages and that, you know, participation was equal to moving the needle or to making an impact, which I don't think it actually is, but there's a whole group of people who believe that that's, that's the right way to manage. Uh, and I think it will take, to be honest, them retiring, <laughs> um, yeah. and to have a new set of managers come in with a different set of ideas around what success looks like for themselves, for their team, um, for things to really shift, uh, you know the the model that um i would call it like office culture is based on is uh you know, can be derived back to the world war ii factory production system where you know there were like there was a, an assembly line as uh, i'm sure we all have seen and there are widgets moving down the line and you know people on the line were responsible for their step in the process uh, maybe a little bit what was happening right above and below them but no one really needed to think about like the broader system and managers literally yeah, sat above understand. the floor uh, and we're supervising it. And, you know, you, even as work moved from being mostly blue collar to more white collar environments with much more creative tasks, uh, you know, in professional services or in finance or in arts or entertainment, we still kind of kept that model as if we were all producing widgets. And, and so that hasn't been relevant for a long time. Um, and, I, you know, the top performing companies, I think, abandoned it a while ago. But now we have this additional forcing function where uh, even though there's, there's a, a class of managers who are brought up to manage by proximity, um, what happens uh, when those managers can actually see <laughs> their team members all day long, and where you know too many meetings actually leads to burnout or inefficiency? And so I think that's where the rub is right now, where you know it wasn't as if you had like uh, huge groups of people who were just burning out before COVID, but this the remote or distributed context in, that, in, that, in which we're now working. Um, I think it's causing like a lot of shock to the system. And so I I think it will take a while because there will be, you know, a transition (laughs) kind -hmm. of a cultural transition that happens at work as you know, you see Gen Z people who are natively entering the workforce and a couple of years ago, everyone was like, Oh, how will they manage? You know, how will they get mentorship and friendships? And they're doing just fine. I think they're doing probably better than any previous (laughs) generation. They're drinking less and um, they're, they're mentally much healthier than my generation millennials. Um, you know so everyone's doing fine uh it's it's um i think i think uh it, so it will take time for kind of that culture to transition i think it's there's also huge parts of our economy that are tied into the old way of working uh yeah. you know, the commercial real estate industry is going to go through a major restructuring um public transportation systems uh i live in san francisco you know a huge percentage of our um city's revenue base is based on uh like corporate taxes, like that's not going to be there. And so I think it's going to take time for, to, for us to kind of restructure how we all work and live. Uh, you know, I, to give you a more personal example, I go to a gym now during the daytime and at 12 p.m. And the gym I go to, you know, used to have huge peaks early in the morning and after work. And now they actually have much more balance throughout the day. So some businesses are thriving, like uh, small businesses, cafes, restaurants, parks, um, gyms and communities. So it's not—it's not all that. It's not that there's only been losers in this transition. There's been major winners too, um, but but yeah, I think there's some people who may have more trouble shifting, whereas people who are growing up natively in this environment—it's the only way they've they've ever worked and lived—and um, I think it'll take time.
0: I think so. Yeah, David, welcome back. And,
1: and one of, the, yeah, thank you. I got a call from Cynthia Kersey, so it, it kicked me out. So it's hilarious. anyways uh you know what's so interesting to me is i think there's a great gap in productivity and awareness of the power of productivity meaning that our businesses our industries have not caught up to the power of productivity from the gen z uh people from our younger employees they can do Sometimes without the knowledge of the directors, executives and board members, they have no uh, capability of understanding how productive these people can be. And so we've actually lowered the bar in the hybrid and remote settings of productivity because, you know, a lot of employees can get by not only with doing one tenth the amount of time that they used to do and what their predecessors would do but they can actually capture three or four jobs uh, because of the lack of knowledge of productivity. How do you see this gap being closed where, you know, as a whole, the industry starts realizing, Oh my gosh, we are expecting so very little out of our employees. We really can benefit by an acknowledgement of productivity. Yeah.
4: I think we're seeing this, this shift from like a command and control power and information structure that typifies office culture to more of a, um, you know, direct A to B uh, workflow that uh, provides online culture. If you think about like Google, right, if we have a question, we don't go, you know, talk to the map person first and they go talk to their other map person. We just go to Google Maps and <laughs> uh, and, and find the information we're looking for. I think that's the power of the internet is that it's, you know, essentially a, a network where you can just draw a straight line from, from your question to an answer, from an input to an output. And I think that's how modern teams often work as well. If you Need something, you go directly to the person who has it, um, or you find the answer yourself. And so yeah, I think people who grew up natively and uh on the internet um just know how to do that uh because that's the only way they've ever existed. I think the question is what's the role for you know managers or, or what does it mean to be productive in a um, in an online world? And I think when we have the teams, we've heard three things come up really consistently, like almost 80, 90% of the time. The first is counterintuitively more structure. Uh, I think there's this general idea that like modern work means just get a bunch of smart people in the room and let let them do what they want. And what we've heard from great managers, even in high performing uh, distributed teams, is that structure actually enables speed. If you tell people uh, what success looks like at the start of the project, you make roles clear, um, you talk about how work's going to get done, uh, the actual work happens much more smoothly and that means it happens much more quickly because everybody can make better decisions on their own people know what the handoff points are uh it's it's obvious what happens what the protocol is if there's a problem or or a concern or a conflict and so structure is something that um even in an online world can lead to more productivity the second is is transparency um, which is again counterintuitive because i think a lot of managers think my job is to control information and parcel it out um the more the best teams actually uh, have managers who enable transparency and, and tactically that means um, over sharing information uh, creating really good documentation so people can find answers on their own um, sharing status updates in a place people can access asynchronously um, actually empowering your team to like have the information and get the answers they need so again they can just do stuff without having to constantly slack or email or meet about it and the last piece is fewer meetings which again is Something that managers to let go of as kind of a tool for control or power, but meetings are just you know the biggest destruction destroyer of productivity out there. Um, Of course, sometimes you need to meet, uh, but there's a lot of meetings that don't need to be meetings. They could be documents instead or messages. And um, you know we've seen cultures that make a shift from being meeting first to being document first tend to move a lot faster and enable their employees to actually spend their days doing work that matters versus the overhead stuff that um, is both unproductive and also really unsatisfying on an individual level. You
0: know, that, that's an interesting point, I think, Adam, um, the meeting piece here. Most meetings in my experience are, are, are really organized around what are we doing, yeah? Now, and what I'm, where I'm going with this is, these are the kinds of, you know, face-to-face meetings, you know, ideally from my perspective would be around how are we doing and then the what are we doing can be handled just in the way that you were describing it. I mean, this can be yeah, you know, distributed and it doesn't have to require a face-to-face because it actually can be relatively well documented. And as long as you've got some structure to the point that you were just making set up here, that how gets handled or that, you know, that what are we doing gets handled because it drops into the appropriate places here.
4: Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me, I mean, we have a phrase like, could this meeting be a document and uh, it, you know, when we were building Almanac, the tool, which is really about helping teams operationalize the modern work method just by using a new tool. So you don't actually have to like think about it. Um, you know, we, we went and looked at uh, thousands of, of notifications from Google Docs to try and figure out like what are people sharing? What are they commenting or assigning tasks on? And generally, what we found is that people are doing the same four or five types of collaboration and documents. They're asking for feedback, they're requesting formal approval, they're sharing out information so that for an, kind of an FYI. Um, or, they're, or they're kind of requesting suggestions or changes over time. Um, and so there's these common workflows that we all do. And, you know, the, the example you brought up of like, here's the plan, often what needs to be done in that case is someone writes a proposal, they share it for feedback, the team gives feedback, someone then kind of consolidates the changes, they share it out again as like, here's what we're doing. All that can be done asynchronously without a meeting. It can be done, yep. uh, you know, uh, when and when how and where it works best for you and the rest of the team. Um, we, we tend, to, tend to find in our customers that meetings are best when there's not a clear yes or no answer, when you can't just say like, do you approve yes or no? Have you read this yes or no? <laughs> do you have feedback yes or no? But maybe more complex situations, often with urgent timelines. And even in those cases, starting the meeting with a document to say, here's the context, here are our options, here's some analysis so that the meeting can be focused on, let's have a productive conversation w- where we now are on the same page about the facts and the alternatives. Those are the best meetings because then, you know, you really can spend your time pushing the ball forward versus making sure everyone's on the same page or, again, you know, sharing stuff that can be easily done uh, before or after the meeting.
0: You know, what this strikes me is, is, is really kind of an exercise in intentional design. And, you know, the, the metaphor, I, you know, when I get an executive team together, oftentimes I'll, I'll have them make paper airplanes and fly the airplanes and try to hit a target that's about two, you know, three meters away. Nobody can hit the target. Nobody ever hits the target because it's a discrete target. It's not the wall. Someplace yeah. on the wall, and so the conversation there is: as a leader, what do you think is the most important role that you play? Pilot. I've got my hands on control. I've got. Yeah. You know, no, it's not. The most important role is the one of the designer. Your airplane yeah. didn't hit the target because it wasn't designed to. Yeah. And yeah. what I'm what I'm struck by in what you're saying here is that when you know, everything went south you know, for, you know, in twenty March twenty twenty. The push to go back to what we were was a familiar design, and we had a you know had it. I do think we still have a greenfield opportunity to design a completely different work structure, ethos, and process that is generative and holistic and healthy, yeah, you know, in the long term. And yeah. that's what I that's what I hear uh, you talking about with Almanac is how do we do that?
4: I think you're right. I mean, I think this is the, the shift if you think about remote work as almost a form of technology, right, it's a, it's an enabling condition that allows us to do more and be more productive to what David was saying. It's, it's the same kind of disruptive force as the internet or mobile phones yep. or the cloud. And, you know, I, I think with all of these cases, there's these, these disruptions have created new winners and losers. You know, some mm-hmm. people recognize the power of the opportunity and embraced it early and got ahead, you know, had an advantage and other people are still stuck uh, in the past. You know, there's, it's, there's still conferences out there about helping companies move to the cloud, even though the cloud's been around for 20 years. You know, some companies are so on the cloud that, um, you know, they they don't even know what on-prem means. It's And those companies tend to be market leaders. They're the um, fastest growing, most profitable companies out there. So I see distributed work, remote work as the same kind of opportunity where I don't expect everyone to embrace these ideas or even get them. Some people will resist them to your point uh, out of fear or, or whatever it may be. But um, I think the, the teams that, uh, that do try and figure out yeah you know, how do we how do we adapt and evolve so that we can win uh, in this new normal? those are the teams that are, that are gonna, that are already getting ahead. and many of the companies uh, were doing this even before covid uh, that are that are market leaders and, and not market leaders in like their productivity just market leaders in terms of revenue and market share and growth. And so I think there's a direct correlation between how you work and how well your business does. Yep. and yeah, I mean, to your last point, I, I think, sometimes people think about this as like overhead, like, Oh, it's, you know, I'm so there's so mesh in the chaos of the day to day that they can't pull up and, and think about it. I think that's why like people buy these business books at airports. Cause it's like, Oh, I'm on vacation. Let me like, think about, think about the work of work a little bit. But what we've seen is that the teams that are best at this um, tend to design systems that are simple and cheap and flexible. They don't overthink it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they create something that works well for their team. And so a lot of these ideas, aren't complicated like <laughs> writing everything down is a very simple idea um, yeah. and and you know the best systems that end up working for teams are the ones that they follow through on the same same as any other kind of behavior change like diet or exercise uh, you know pursuing like a really difficult complex formula tends to not sustain what works are a couple simple ideas like let's have fewer meetings let's write everything down let's share stuff to create transparency um, so, so that everyone can do it for a very long time into the future.
0: Beautiful. We're going to have you back on uh, David and I have a number of different shows that we do. I'd love to have you on my soul of business podcast because this fits beautifully on this. Um, And and when David shows up again, we'll we'll get a a, a more in in depth uh, conversation going with him as well. So folks, I want you to check out almanac.io. We've had a great conversation here. Adam Nathan is founder and CEO. So, Thanks for sharing everything. I look of forward course. to connecting again and uh, we'll be back. Thanks so much. Take care. And, folks, uh, I am um, going to sign off here. I'm not sure if David is going to be doing his regular Friday. I can't imagine he wouldn't be, but I don't have all of the information in front of me right now about that. But if you are familiar with the way that uh, David works on Fridays, check it out. Yeah, go and, um, yeah. I think there's probably a free training going on uh, tomorrow morning. So um, thank you for listening to Office Hours with David Meltzer. I am the co-host of this particular Thursday show, Blaine Bartlett, and we'll see you next week. Take care.